Krishna. Uh, thank you all for coming. Tonight I would like to, I'm trying to get decent here. Tonight I would like to speak on a, um, a, a very powerful intellectual movement uh, in the second part of the 20th century and continuing today, which I think is, re I mean, remarkable for its uh, inability to get almost anything right. And uh, this is called postmodernism. And I'm going to read you some uh, definitions of postmodernism. It's, it's um, they can be, it's an attempt to, you could say, democratize reality. The idea that there is no objectivity, the only objectivity is there is no objectivity, which is obviously self-contradictory, but they don't worry about things like that. So if you, interestingly, Prabhupada um, used to give the example of a Viennese music teacher who used to charge students twice as much if they had previous studies. The reason being that first he had to unlearn, teach them to unlearn all the wrong things they'd learn and then learn the right things. And so, um, the world, the Western world began to dramatically change uh, just before Lord Chaitanya came. And uh, then during Lord Chaitanya's life, uh, the world actually changed forever, you could say. There were very powerful changes, which in retrospect made possible an international society for Krishna consciousness. Uh, as long as Europe remained in the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, you could certainly do Harinam all over Europe for about five minutes <laughs> before you were burned at the stake as a, uh, you know, as a devil-possessed demon or something. But So um, I'll just mention a few things. And the reason I mention these things is, is to show how Lord Chaitanya, by his coming, actually changed the world, made possible this movement. But also because uh, a lot of intellectuals in the West just, you know, they, it's like they, um, they went too far too much of a good thing that resulted in uh, a threat almost to our sanity, not to speak of our spirituality, uh, this threat in the form of postmodernism. So just to give you a few things, uh, first of all, uh, about, I mean, just roughly about 100 years, a little more than 100 years before Lord Chaitanya came, a movement began in Europe, it started in Florence, Italy, and the purpose was to try to revive uh, classical civilization, Greco-Roman civilization, and this movement was called the Renaissance. The word, of course, the French word Renaissance means rebirth, and rebirth of what? A rebirth of Greco-Roman civilization which architecturally and other artistic ways, philosophically, almost right down the line intellectually, was far superior to the world that 
people lived in in the West. It also was a, a world of freedom of religion <clears throat> until it became Christian. Uh, it was a world with, um, the perhaps the most important thing about this world is that it had a very powerful connection to Vedic culture. Uh, the first obvious connection was linguistic. The obvious connection was linguistic. Um, if you look at ancient Greek, if you look at ancient Latin, it is remarkably similar to Sanskrit. Not simply that some words sound the same, uh, which a lot of them do, <clears throat> because they're coming from the same root, but also even if you go into the deep structure of the language, the way, I won't go into all the details here, although I know nothing fascinates you more than technical grammar. <laughs> But even if you go into things like verb conjugations, noun declensions at a very deep level, it's obviously coming from the same language. And for example, why is it that uh, Spanish and Portuguese are so similar? Or German and Dutch. Dutch, of course, is just Deutsch. You know, why are German and Dutch so similar or even Italian and French? Because there's a Latin base. All these countries were uh, part of a great Roman empire, which imposed Latin language and this Latin language in different regions uh, developed in different ways. So you get Romance languages. And of course, uh, uh, German and Dutch are Germanic languages. That's not, they're not Romance languages, but because obviously, anyway, what I mean to say is when, when you look at the Indo-European language family, which includes Sanskrit and most importantly, Albanian, and ancient Hittite, well, there's a group of people, there were a group of people called the Hittites who made a peace treaty with the Mitanni nation. Uh, this is right at the border of Europe uh, about almost 4,000 years ago and they signed their treaty in the name of the Vedic gods. So, um, so the fact that, I won't go into the whole history, how this was discovered and everything academically, but the fact that Sanskrit is so intimately related with all European language families, except Hungarian, which comes from the Huns, obviously, Basque, somehow or other, and Finnish. But otherwise, the Slavic languages, the Germanic languages, including English, the Latin languages like French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and Romanian, they're all intimately connected with Sanskrit. So because there is, and this, this is mainstream scholarship, this is not something I read on a wacko website, <laughs> you know, on a conspiracy website, why won't they tell you? So, but the fact is, anyway, I won't make mine, tell you what I think of conspiracy website. So the fact, so this is non-controversial, there is an Indo-European language family and everyone agrees that must mean there was an Indo-European culture. And Prabhupada himself, affirms this in several purports in the fourth canto, by the way. And there's evidence of it that the people may not have noticed. For example, there are some of the most prominent people in our literature are actually blonde. They don't have dark hair. Among the prominent blondes are, for example, Lord Indra. Yes, he's kind of like Thor. He kind of looks more like Thor than <laughs> The Rig Veda says that his hair is golden, like the color of the sun, that's in plain language. That's a poetic way of saying blonde. <laughs> and another blonde, and you may, this may not 
seen this one coming, according to the 10th canto, chapter 70 of the Bhagavatam, another blonde is none other than Narda Muni. It's in the Bhagavatam. Don't kill the messenger. So, <laughs> so in other words, it's an Indo-European civilization. Therefore, if we look back to the Greco-Roman civilization, which very roughly is about halfway back to Krishna's appearance in this world. And so they were twice as close to Krishna as we were, as we are historically. And um, you find this all over. For example, one of the uh, first great Greek philosophers was Pythagoras, who gave you, among other things, the theorem, which bears his name, Pythagorean theorem. And he was actually a mystic. He had ashrams. He taught reincarnation, karma. And, you know, the goal of life is to ultimately return to the divine and so on. And there was, a, there was a, another uh, early Greek philosopher, pre-Socratic, named Empedocles, exactly the time of Buddha, by the way, who preached that the, uh, the original sin of human beings that caused, caused their fall down to earth was animal sacrifice and killing animals. That cruelty to animals is the sin that caused the degradation of human beings and so on. So, so anyway, there is this Indo-European civilization. And therefore, in a broader sense, the Renaissance, the Renaissance, the rebirth of classical civilization is a rebirth of the Western branch of Vedic culture. I mean, it's a very interesting thing. For example, the, the first great emperor of the Persian Empire, who is, who is called a messiah, in the Old Testament, because the Jewish people had been taken to Babylonian when they were conquered by Babylonians. That's another history. And, um, and then uh, Cyrus the Great conquered the Babylonians, gave permission to the Jews to return to Israel, and even gave them a donation to help rebuild their temple. And so he, among other things, Cyrus abolished slavery throughout his empire which was very radical at that time. And also he declared freedom of religion in his empire. Freedom of religion, two things you, that, which we find in the earliest uh, accounts of foreigners visiting India, such as that of Megosthenes around the same time. And so who was a Greek ambassador to India. But what's interesting is his name wasn't actually Cyrus. Oh, by the way, he spoke a dialect of Vedic Sanskrit. Persian, ancient Persian, also called the Avestan language, is a dialect of Vedic Sanskrit. And in his own language, uh, this great emperor's name was actually Kuru, which is a very popular king name in the Mahabharata. Not only the original Kuru, but it's, it's a popular name for kings. Anyway, so there was a lot going on back then. And so the Renaissance, the rebirth, of Indo-European civil, uh, of the classical world is really, in a broader sense, a rebirth of the greater Vedic or Indo-European culture. And that historical impulse to revive this culture began just 100 years approximately before Lord Chaitanya. Early figures like Petrarch, Dante, who themselves called Dark Ages, they're the ones that gave the name Dark Ages. And then Lord Chaitanya comes, 
And just before Lord Chaitanya came, something else happened, which Prabhupada would really appreciate, and that was the invention of the printing press, which happened just before Lord Chaitanya. Why is that important? Because without a, because it used to be extremely expensive to get a book. Only rich people had books, you know, monasteries or nobles, because you had to pay someone to copy it by hand. And you, you know, that, that takes a while. It's not like a copy machine. And, and so with the printing press, you have the growth of literacy, the growth of literacy. More and more people start to read. And when people read, they do something very dangerous. They start to think. <laughs> something else happened around the time of Lord. Again, Lord Chaitanya is orchestrating this total seismic shift on planet Earth. Another thing that happens when Lord Chaitanya is six years old, when Lord Chaitanya was six years old, something happened which would again change everything. And that is when Lord Chaitanya was six, Columbus set sail, trying to get to East India, where Lord Chaitanya was. Of course, he hit a little bump in the road called North America. But anyway, uh, so that happens. So why is that important to Lord Chaitanya's movement? Because with the discovery of America, and perhaps even more exciting for greedy Europeans, with the discovery of the, the Spanish discovery of gold in the New World, which you could get with the, the sort of the minor inconvenience of having to commit something like genocide against Native people. Anyway, with the discovery of gold in the New World, suddenly, although for almost, you could say, thousands of years, the commercial superhighway for that part of the world had been the Mediterranean, which connected to the Great Silk Route all the way to India and China. So that was the commercial superhighway where there's money, there's power, there's the power, for example, to promote education, all kinds of, all kinds of things happen when you, when you get money, as you may know. And so suddenly the new commercial superhighway was the Atlantic Ocean. But the relevant part for the Hare Krishna movement is that with this sudden fever to cross the ocean, there was an explosion of new technology, new technology in shipbuilding, navigation, and you know, honk if you really understand the contribution of Captain Cook. <laughs> actually, one of the great geniuses in the field of cartography. He was actually a genius. He changed the world by his map making. Anyway, so, um, so suddenly, you have the printing press, and as the Europeans start to go all around the world, trying to get to India, by the way, in China, because world, I hope you don't mind me telling you all this stuff, but it's, this is what the world, this is what was going on in the world when Lord Chaitanya appeared. This is the world that Lord Chaitanya appeared in. World trade basically went from Europe to China and India. And uh, anyway, so that's why they're trying to get to India. They're trying to find a way to India they couldn't go the usual way through Constantinople because that had fallen to the Muslims. So world trade was disrupted. That's why Columbus sailed. And, but with this, so suddenly there was an explosion of new technology, shipbuilding, navigation, uh, and then the printing press. So people are reading about it. Suddenly Europe starts to become literate. People become aware of other things. People start to become cosmopolitan. They become interested in other cultures. They, they come rushing out of the dark ages which really was kind of like this extended Monty Python movie. 
<laughs> so anyway, so suddenly people, now one of the results of that, something else happened when Lord Chaitanya was on the planet, without which it would have been impossible to have an international society for Krishna consciousness. And that is the religious monopoly collapsed. There had been a religious monopoly in the Western world under the Roman Catholic Church with the Protestant Reformation, which took place while Lord Chaitanya was on the planet. Suddenly, for the first time in God knows how long, you could actually choose what religion you want. And, and, and so anyway, with that, uh, basically with, with the collapse of religious hegemony, and then, and then there was a scientific revolution. So if you put all these things together, the Renaissance, the age of exploration, the printing press, the Protestant Reformation, the world has been radically transformed around the time of Lord Chaitanya. And all these things were essential to make possible a modern world and an international society for Krishna consciousness. But now, uh, then, you know, now was where we play like the ooh, eerie organ music in the movie because the phantom is about to come into the opera. The problem is, I mean, I mean, I mean, the good thing is that people have more and more freedom. They could choose a religion and so on and so forth. And of course, this takes time and there's all kinds of reactions against it, but this is basically what's happening. But what happens is that it's like a runaway truck where there's no break. And people want more and more and more freedom. And then at first, the freedom just to worship God the way you want, or the freedom just of conscience turns into the freedom to become degraded or the freedom to um, ultimately in postmodernism, maybe I'll just fast forward all this. If you look at the 18th century, there was the idea that we are not enslaved by one particular sectarian religion that came from the Middle East. That we have, and people would think we have our own European culture, and we don't have to be enslaved intellectually to something coming out of the Middle East. So um, then you have the age of reason, the idea that God has given us reason, which is our most precious gift, that we're conscious that we have free will. And, and with this free consciousness, we have the power to be reasonable. In other words, if you're trying to get let's say from Melbourne to Sydney, because you love the traffic jams there. So let's say you're trying to get from Melbourne to Sydney, you don't dive into the ocean, swim towards Tasmania, unless you're gonna shatter all records and swim around the earth through the South Pole and eventually come back around down the coast of Australia, which is very unlikely. So reason, and the idea was that God, and this is of course correct, God is an infinitely rational creature, not just some angry deity that needs a whole variety of 12-step programs, <laughs> like anger management, jealousy management, and, uh, so on and so forth. This actually goes back to the ancient Greece. The idea that, and, and the word they use the word they use for divine reason, which is the mind of God, is, is this infinitely divine reason, was logos, logos. 
And that's why all the different branches of scholarship in the West, or most of them, are called ologies, like logi, like, for example, geology, like uh, geos in Greek, uh, earth and logos, the logos of the earth. Geology, or bios in Greek, means life. So the logos, a rational investigation into the, uh, the anatomy of life is called, is called biology, and so on and so forth. That's why they put all these ologies, because it's the logos. So the idea is that, that there is this infinite divine reason in the mind of God, and therefore when God creates the, the world, he creates it in a, in a reasonable way. That was Newton's whole point, that we can find logic and structure everywhere we look in the universe. And because we are creations of God, that same divine logos is within us. And so therefore, the logos within us, in other words, our divine reason, connects with the logos within nature. And therefore, you have something called natural theology, that you can understand the creator by studying the creation. And this was the philosophical underpinning of the new science, the scientific revolution. You get it, right? I mean, and, and also, by our divine logos, we can actually understand God. So, actually, it's interesting. Uh, approximately, oh God, how long would that be? Maybe about 1,900 years ago, there was a gentleman in West Turkey that wrote a book for a new religious movement. He was trying to attract, you know, intelligent people to the movement. And so, therefore, he began his book by saying, in the beginning was the logos which is translated the word. Anyway, so the book of John. But it was trying to you know, appeal to educated pagans by bringing in logos philosophy. In the beginning was the logos. So, um, so in the, with the Renaissance, there was the idea that ra rather than be ruled by fanatical priests or cruel kings, who have no rational reason to rule us anyway. They just happen to have power and might doesn't make right. That actually everything should be done rationally. And therefore there was the idea of a science of human society, which eventually became sociology, of a political science, of a science of the universe, which became physics and astronomy. And there was this idea of approaching the world in a rational way with the belief that there is an objective world and we can discover it. We ourselves can be reasonable. We can maximize human happiness by living reasonably. And by the way, Krishna says the same thing. Often in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna describes what we're doing, bhakti yoga, as buddhi yoga, the spiritual path of reason. In that famous verse in the Gita 10.10, Krishna says, uh, that Teshang for them, for those people, Teshang Satata Jutanam, who are always engaged in Krishna consciousness, Bhajatam Priti Purvakam, and are worshiping thee with love, I give them something by which they come to me. Dadami. So what does Krishna give? He gives divine reason, the logos, actually. Dadami Buddhi Yogam Tang Jainamam Upajantiti. I give them Buddhi yoga, buddhi means reason, our rational analytic faculty by which they, they come to me. So that's the connection between the logos theory of the ancient Western world and its Indo-European neighbor, 
India, in which Krishna reveals Bhuti Yoga, which he often calls what we're doing. In fact, Prabhupada uh, titled chapter two of the Bhagavad Gita, Contents of the Gita Summarized. So chapter two is a summary of the entire Bhagavad Gita and the chapter pivots around halfway in on verse 39, 239, where Krishna says, Krishna has just explained in so many ways how you're not this body, how the soul is eternal, never born, never dies, and so on and so forth. And having explained all that metaphysics, having explained what is the body, what is the soul, Krishna then, then tells Arjuna, what I have just explained to you is buddhi. Analytic reason. Sankhye, in a philosophical sense. And now he says, yoga, now hear it in practice. So Sankhya Yoga in the Gita and outside the Gita means something like philosophy and practice. And yet Krishna says that what he's teaching in chapter two, which is the summary of the entire Gita, is buddhi. Philosophically, Sankhya and in practice, yoga. So that is the importance, actually the central importance of reason, of being reasonable in Krishna consciousness uh, within the Bhagavad Gita. So now what happened is the, um, as the world became more degraded and more free and in some ways better, in some ways worse, um, around the middle of the 20th century, there was this idea to take freedom to its ultimate extreme and to democratize reality itself. In other words, they rejected the older view of the rationalists that there is an objective world out there that we can discover. And we can all agree on that. If we're all reasonable, we may have different opinions, but ultimately through sincere discussion, we can all agree on the nature of reality because it's objective and the creation of God. And so by, by the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, some people think, well, reality is democratic. In other words, everyone gets to have their own reality. And, and th there is no one reality, which is kind of stupid because the only reason they could speak, say English or French or German, and other people understand what they're saying is because there is an objective reality. There's certainly an objective linguistic reality and if you, and, you know, in, in Europe back then, everyone that had to go to the market every day, they knew exactly which road to take, and it really was that road. And so this attack on objectivity, why this postmodern attack on objectivity? Because ultimately it's an attack on any kind of authority. In other words, even someone saying this is real and that's not real, either in the field of science or philosophy of religion, no. Reality itself has to be democratized. If this sounds like madness, you understood it. It is madness. <clears throat> and so I'm going to read just very briefly here. Postmodernism is a broad movement that developed in the mid to late 20th century across philosophy, the arts, architecture, literary criticism, etc. While encompassing a wide variety of approaches, postmodernism is generally defined by an attitude of skepticism like don't believe anything, uh, except the postmodernists. That's the only thing you should believe. Skepticism, irony, or rejection. Rejection of the meta-narrative. In other words, like the big picture. 
For example, in Bhagavad Gita and Srinivas Bhagavatam, we get a big picture of reality. Christianity gives a big picture of reality. Uh, empirical science tries to give a big picture. They just can't explain half of reality, which I'll explain in a minute. But there are no meta means kind of like big, no narratives that explain everything. No one, there's no uh, theory or explanation of reality which is actually true, except that one. I mean, the intellectual hypocrisy here is stunning. Anyway, so they reject meta-narratives, uh, ideologies, calling into question uh, un universalist notions of objective reality, morality, truth, human nature, reason, progress, and certainly God. So all these things, I mean, I mean the hypocrisy is, is, is like amazing. And these are not the brightest people. And somehow or other, they got control of many universities so they could teach their nonsense uh, to other people. But actually, philosophically, it is actually nonsense. I've been looking more into it in the last several days, some of the leading figures and God. I was thinking, it can't be that stupid. Maybe I'm missing something. <laughs> but actually, it is. So rather than go more into postmodernism, you know, like war, like there's no, there's no objective reality, blah, 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 except what I just said. Um, I would like to prove to you through logic that um, we, this is something I've been speaking on other places. So if this is like an I Love Lucy rerun, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we can actually prove logically that um, we live in a bi-dimensional universe that we actually live in a bi-dimensional universe, which to use Aristotle's terms, a universe which is both physical and metaphysical. Here, meta means beyond what comes after. And the physical world is physics, you know, physics, just the natural, quote unquote, natural world, which is somewhat misleading name since spiritual world is actually even more natural. But anyway, the physical world, that's physics. And then metaphysics, what comes after that? Now, to give an example of something totally metaphysical, empirically incomprehensible and absolutely metaphysical, uh, democracy. In the sense that it's based on equality. Now, equality is empirical nonsense because you, it is impossible to even imagine a test, an empirical test, you could give the human beings so that they all get the same score. Unless the way you take the test is by looking at it. Okay, you passed, you looked at it. So, in other words, if you test our abilities in music, mathematics, art, emotional IQ, uh, management, you name it, we're all different. And so equality is empirical, nonsense spiritually or let's say so so if we are equal in what sense are we equal we're not empirically equal so what's left so so this is the idea i'm trying to explain there's physics and there's metaphysics another uh 
I'll give you another example of a metaphysical truth that we almost everyone shares except the worst sociopaths. I won't say among us, <laughs> but let's say out there. And that is, for example, uh, everyone except the worst sociopaths believe, not only believe, would claim they know that it is morally wrong to torture and kill innocent people. Does anyone here think it is not morally wrong to torture and kill innocent people? Identify yourself and give you a free Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> oh no, that's the wrong, that's the wrong group. So, now also if you can tolerate a little more philosophy, uh, if you would have known there's gonna be so much philosophy and grammar, you probably would have taken pain pills before you came. <laughs> So one universal branch, in other words, it's found everywhere, a philosophy is called epistemology, from the Greek word episteme, which in Greek means knowledge. So epistemology basically is how do you know you know? That's basically it. Or how do you know you know you know? <laughs> in other words, under what conditions can a person reasonably say they know something? And under what, in, in, under what circumstances can you reasonably say that someone who claims to know something doesn't really know it, it's merely their opinion. So that's epistemology. Now, there is a very common philosophical position, which Aristotle talks about, the father of modern logic, which is called foundationalism. And of course, the postmodernists try to weasel out of this, but they really can't. Foundationalism is the idea that any system of knowledge, whether it's empirical or religious or, uh, you know, grammatical, any system of knowledge has to begin by the claim that something is self-evident. By the way, Lord Chaitanya said the same thing. Sarvabhoma literally said the same thing to Sarvabhoma Bhattacharya and Prakashna Sarasati. The idea is, as Aristotle explained it, if you claim something is true, someone can ask you to prove it, and then you have to prove that and prove that and prove that, and you, you are pushed into an infinite regress. Regress means going backwards. You're pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And so the way you stop this is you have to sincerely claim that there is a fact in the world which proves itself. And therefore, like they say, you can't hold a candle to the sun. Now to give an example of a system of knowledge which begins and which can only begin with an unprovable assumption. In other words, you can't bring in some other outside proof of it. It's a claim that something is self-evident, it proves itself. The system of knowledge I'm referring to is empirical science. And the assumption, which they cannot prove within their system, is that there's a real world outside of our mind. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone says, of course there's a real world outside of our mind, like this is a real water bottle. That's called circular reasoning or begging the question. Because this is a real water bottle only if there's a real world. And what you're trying to prove is that there's a real world outside your mind. So you can't say uh, that there's a real world outside my mind. 
So that proves there's a real world outside my mind. That's begging the question. You Logically, you, you actually did, didn't do anything. It's not an argument, it's just claiming something is true. So therefore, to do empirical science, you have to make a self-evident claim. You have to say, as they do say, that the nature of our experience of this world, could someone tell those people to go talk somewhere else? They uh, unfortunately don't understand the idea. So yeah, someone needs to explain to those people. Actually, when I went to Harvard, I, I went to the Harvard Memorial Church on the Harvard Yard one day just to see, like, what's the competition doing? And um, I was really impressed that once the lecture starts, that's it. No one goes in or out. And there's absolute silence. That's called culture. So, um, People who accept that there's a real world outside their mind are in, a sense, in essence saying that the nature of our experience of the world is such that it proves itself to us. The quality of the experience, the nature of the experience is such that it proves itself to us. It does not be proved by something else, just as you, you don't hold a candle to the sun to prove there's a sun. The sun reveals itself. In the same way, the world, the world out there, the physical world reveals itself to us in a way which we cannot reasonably doubt due to the nature of the experience. Now that's the basis of empirical science. And you can't prove that through empirical science because that would be begging the question. Interestingly, there's also a metaphysical world. For example, when we, claim, as we will claim, we know that we know that it's wrong to torture and kill innocent people, children. We're not saying that, well, that's my opinion. We know that's true. When we see some terrible offense against moral principles, like someone, let's say, performing some evil against another person, we know that it's wrong. We don't believe it. We know it. In fact, we know it as well as we know that there's a real world outside our mind. And so therefore, the fact that there are moral laws in the universe, the fact that there is some way in which people are equal, which Krishna talks about a lot in the Gita, by the way, we know that as deeply as we know that there's a real world outside. In fact, when these two, when the physical and metaphysical realities compete, people tend to choose the metaphysical reality, not the empirical reality. An example of that is the government of Australia or America or Canada. We should mention some non-English speaking countries. But anyway, all, all the modern, most of the modern countries, uh, in what sense? Because although empirically every Australian citizen is not equal to any other citizen. Different abilities, athletic, musical, intellectual, mathematical, emotional, IQ. And yet, Australia, like most of the countries in the world, rejects 
the empirical reality and structures, bases, its political, judicial, and cultural system on a metaphysical fact that we're equal. So when these two facts give different accounts of the same thing, all of material science, all of material science saying that we're not equal, and this metaphysical belief that somehow we are equal, it turns out the metaphysical fact is more important, and that's what we base the government on. And that's how you get democracy. So here's the point. Almost everybody in the world, and probably about roughly the same percentage of people that believe there's a real world outside their mind, because some people can't quite make that stretch, you know, they, and they get funds from the government. So the idea is that almost everybody who's not psychotic or so, a sociopath uh, understands that there's a real, that there are real moral principles. So then the, the obvious question is, what kind of universe do we live in if there are objective, real things that are not empirical, that are not material, that are not physical? How could non-physical, non-empirical things be objective facts? What does that mean? What does that say about the universe? And in fact, we live in a bi-dimensional universe in which there's a physical, metaphysical realm, and ultimately we tend to privilege the metaphysical over the physical as in, for example, giving your life to your country or uh, seeing that everyone is equal under the law. And that is the uh, absurdity. And, and, and now you can see why the post, some postmodernists try to attack foundationalism, the idea that there are uh, self, claims of self-evidence that underlie every knowledge system, certainly including empirical science. It's like geometry. If nothing is given, you can't prove anything. If you have a geometry problem and it said given nothing, now there's no geometry. Something has to be given and, and you reason from what is given as true. And so that's the idea of a self-evident truth. By the way, the, the word in Sanskrit, Lord Chaitanya used several times was swatak pramanya. Swatak means by itself, pramanya. It constitutes evidence. So he's saying exactly the same thing as Aristotle and modern philosophers. So therefore, in a sense, what we're trying to do with people is get them to try to understand how it could be the case that we live in a bi-dimensional universe. And just as they have the big, big Bang Theory and all these, you know, these fun things they do, to explain where the physical universe came from, where the metaphysical universe come from. <laughs> and in fact, we know <clears throat> that the, uh, the archaeoastronomical theory, the Big Bang theory, by a priori, in other words, by, by definition, cannot give a complete explanation of reality. Some things are analytically true or analytically cannot be true. To give an example that I've been giving, uh, let's say someone claims that there is a a 500-pound white unicorn romping around uh, the street. Now, what we can do is we can send thousands of people out, so and it's visible to human eyes. 
So we can send thousands of people out so that at the same moment, every space on this street is actually being observed by a human observer. And we can say empirically, no white unicorn. So certain things are true or untrue based on empirical investigation. But to say that something is, is untrue, let's say, or true analytically is different. What it means is simply by the rules of logic, something must be true or must not be true. To give an example of something which must be true deductively, you know, the old thing you probably learned in school, all men are mortal. Fortunately, women are immortal, I guess that's the idea. But anyway, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So if it is true that all men are mortal, if it is true that Socrates is a man, that's all we need to know. We don't have to sit around and wait to see if Socrates dies. If we know those two facts, then it is logically impossible that Socrates is not mortal if there are no other extenuating circumstances like, well, we didn't tell you there are different kinds of men and actually, no. If, if those are all the relevant facts of the case, men are mortal, Socrates is a man, we don't have to observe, this is not empirical, it's analytical, it's logical. Now, here's something which is uh, logically impossible. We know that it doesn't exist without looking, without doing any empirical research. And that is, if someone comes and says, yesterday I saw a round square. All you need to know is what the English word round means and what the English word square means. You don't need to go look. And you know analytically that there cannot be a round square. So the, that little, those two words, round square, actually mean nothing. The total amount of meaning is zero. Or if there's any meaning, it's that whoever said that doesn't understand English. So certain things are analytically untrue. So I would say that um, it's practically a logical analytic impossibility for material science to give a complete description of reality because half of reality is not material. Equality is not material, it's not a material object. So it's actually logically impossible for material science to give a complete description of reality. Not only that, um, the essence of the empirical method is the controlled experiment. The controlled experiment, and therefore by definition, empirical science can only study things it can control, which means that anything which is beyond their control, they cannot study. So what do they do? They humbly declare it doesn't exist. So if someone says that anything I cannot control doesn't exist, that's not a philosophy, that's an emotional disorder. <laughs> Anything, so science is a great thing. Every time I go to the dentist, I, I worship science. <laughs> the problem is not science. The problem is fanatical, delusional claims made in the name of science, such as that anything we cannot control cannot exist, or if it does exist, we can never know, which is absurd. And even philosophers have understood it's absurd because because it is absurd. So um, 
when people understand that half the universe and in fact more important half is metaphysical and not physical and that's true based on the same epistemological structure by which we accept there's a real world outside our minds it's self-evidently true at that point you start to ask well, where does where does the metaphysical universe come from and if we find out where the metaphysical universe comes from it's obvious we'll also find out where the physical universe comes from and uh, at that point a uh, person's ready for their first Hare Krishna sweet ball <laughs> anyway so um, I mean, we go on and on and on, but this postmodernism is just, it's kind of like what Krishna says in, in, in chapter six. Actually, I'll read you the verse. It, it's a demonic philosophy, actually. Uh, let's see, where's, um, I have to find it very quickly here. Uh, Bhagavad Gita. It's Bhagavad Gita, verse 16.8, where Krishna describes the worldview of the Asuras, the bad guys. And I'll read it to you. And this is like, this is a really good, precise description of postmodernism. So this is what the, the first thing is asatyam. Satyam means truth. So postmodernism says there is no final truth. There is no overarching truth. It's just everyone has their own truth. And actually you can see sort of trickle down idiotic postmodernism. People say like, oh, is that your God? Is that your reality? It's like, what? I mean, how can you have a God? And what does it even mean? Because if there's any God at all, then, then God must be God. How can you have your God and I have my God? It's like, it's like, is that your pet poodle? Is that your God? So the demon says, there is no absolute truth. There is no objective truth. That's, a, that's what Krishna says. Satyam is truth. Like in India, Satyam eva jayate, that uh, truth alone wins out. So asatyam, there is no truth. Apratishtam, there is no foundation. They're anti-foundationalists. This is great. This is great. So there's no foundation of reality. They say that this world has no Lord. Anishwara. Ishwara means Lord or God. Anishwara. No Lord. No God. The universe has no God. Aparasparas sambhutam. Right on the money here. Aparasparas sambhutam. That the universe simply arises from interaction. Just physical interaction. Aparasparasambhutam kimanya. What else? Kama haitu kam. Everything that everyone does is simply motivated by selfish desire. Therefore, there is no true altruism. This is a sort of perennial philosophical question. Does, does anyone ever really do anything without a selfish desire? Even when, let's say, you help someone else, is it that you really seek the happiness that comes from helping people? Is there true or pure altruism in the world? And the Asuras say no. In other words, there's no ultimate pure love. 
What else? Everyone is motivated by selfish desire. That's literally what it says. So the flaw, of course, in this argument is that although it's true that virtuous deeds, acting in goodness, does make us happy, that does not prove that the happiness was the motive. It may simply be a byproduct. For example, say a mother cares for her child and it makes her happy to do so, it doesn't mean she doesn't care about the child, she really just wants to be happy, no. So, therefore, the mere fact that an activity produces happiness does not prove the happiness was the original motive of that activity. So anyway, uh, according to Bhagavad Gita, the postmodernists are super asuras. I mean, they're just like, they're asuras, postmodernists. They tend to be atheists and uh, deny objectivity, which Krishna talks about here. Asatya, there's no objective truth in the world. So, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to say. So uh, now you can begin to bring up your extremely large donations. <laughs> I'm kidding, actually. This is this lecture is free. So, any questions on this? Yes. Maraj, is uh, political correctness born out of uh, postmodernism, or is it more from the metaphysical side? Postmodernism is, uh, I'm sorry, political correctness. Of course, even some of the great philosophers now have, just, have said this is just like it's become completely nonsensical. Basically, it's intellectual fascism. It's some people who have some good motives and some bad motives telling everybody else what they're allowed to think and feel and say. And being totally unwilling to engage in a rational discussion about it. So usually, if one of the political correctness police, uh, you know, want, you know, catches you saying something they don't approve of, there's no question of a discussion. If you try to even explain that there's another way to look at it, you will basically be shamed and called names, and you'll and they they will attempt to shame you into silence. So uh, yes, yeah, so the it's there's an alternative political correctness, which is. Uh, free speech and freedom of thought and reasonable discussion. Yes. Then how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God as a man? Because we have, we all have independence within limits. For example, even here in Australia or Melbourne or anywhere, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Melbourne. Uh, I'm so sorry. I've been corrected about 108 times <laughs> since my, I arrived in Australia. I hope I said Australia right. Anyway, because even here in Australia or any civilized country in the world, uh, there are laws. There are laws. You can't just do whatever you want unless you, know, unless you want to be incarcerated or something like that. So, so freedom, we don't have absolute freedom. Oops. Is this working? It's the postmodernists that cut the, <laughs> cut the microphone. <laughs> so, even from the material point of view, uh, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. 
What's that? Listening to you, this is almost standing back. This sovereignty of God, independence of man, the 28 elements of food, this conflict between this seems to perpetuate. No, there's a. There, okay, visualize a microphone right here. <laughs> there's actually no conflict because we become free by doing the right thing. I mean, we really don't want psychopaths to have a lot of freedom, do we? We don't want rapists to have a lot of freedom. We don't want killers to have a lot of freedom. It's just like, for example, in Australia, let's say you have a driving driver, driving license, whatever you call it, driver's license. Then you, you're free to drive your car. You just can't drive your car on someone else's front lawn. You know, you have to drive your car on the road. So you can say, well, no, I'm free. I'll drive my car into your living room or something. So freedom is good in the hands of reasonable, ethical people. And reasonable, ethical people understand that we must exercise our freedom in a way that doesn't cause significant harm to other people. If you look at the traffic laws, if you look at the traffic laws, they are designed in a way so that theoretically, if every driver perfectly follows the laws, there'll be no accident. And so therefore, it's in your self-interest that everyone, including yourself, follow the traffic laws. It doesn't mean that this is a fascist state, that you can't drive your car where you want, that if you try to go to Adelaide, you'll be arrested and executed. It's, it's, it's not like that. So freedom has to be understood in a reasonable way. I asked the Christians, they say we all must come to the feet of the cross. I asked the Bodhis, they say we must reestablish our love, loving relationship with the Lord. And these things will be established properly. I don't see ah. The point is that uh, if you want to bring Christianity. Uh, no, I was thinking about it earlier. Because even Christ said, the truth shall bear witness of itself. But the point is that philosophically, the essential message of Jesus, Jesus claimed that if you look at all these very elaborate, complicated laws in the Old Testament, which constitute the covenant, covenant means contract, and so it's sort of a contract theory of our relationship with God. You know, God has given us all these laws, and, and of course the, the summary of the contract is called the Ten Commandments. And according to scholars, if you study the Ten Commandments, the order they come in, it exactly matches a typical legal contract in the Middle East at that time. So the first clause identifies the parties. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So it identifies who the parties are, what the relationship is, and so on. So Jesus said that there, you know, there were thousands of laws and books like, uh, like Leviticus and Numbers and so on. And some of them are hard to follow nowadays. For example, the ethical treatment of your camel. Raise your hand if you own a camel. <laughs> so that's unusual. Most temples I go to, I get a lot more positive responses. Anyway, so the idea here, the idea here, as Jesus said, there are two laws. If you follow these, you get it, which is love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, and might. Jesus did not invent those things during the Old Testament. So if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, you could say that ultimately what Krishna is talking about is the, uh, you know, 
having deep empathy toward all living beings, which he explains over and over and over again, Pandita, Samadarsana, Samaksarvesu, Bhuteshu, and so on, having deep empathy toward all living beings and giving your love to God. And that's exactly what Jesus said. So I was explaining this earlier in the class this morning, that there are two kinds of monotheism, tribal and philosophical. Tribal monotheism, which means a certain tribe of people that don't trust other tribes, um, they have a historical claim, like, you know, God gave these laws to Moses, or the Son of God appeared in this time and place, or the prophet appeared, or whatever. Now, it's the nature of historical events that they are unique. They only happen one time. So if you are basing your religion not on philosophy, but on a historical event, then by definition, we have competing unique historical events. However, if your claims are based on philosophy, philosophical principles are universal. Everyone can share them. So for example, if we say there is one Supreme God, that is not a historical claim, which is naturally unique. It is a philosophical claim, which innumerable people can participate in and agree to. So if we look at religion, not simply in a fanatical way that all importance is given to unique, one-time only historical events, but instead we look at the underlying philosophy then we find that in fact, it's not that all the religions are claiming that only they have the truth and they're against every other religion. That is a complete straw man argument. Anyone that says there's so many religions and they all disagree and they all claim that only they have the truth, and blah, 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 and they contradict each other. If someone says that, the first thing you know about that person is that they have never in their life studied world religions. That's the first thing you know about. We're dealing with a, to use the popular American term, a real knuckle dragger. <laughs> so we, so just yet, yeah, so we we have philosophical monotheism, not tribal monotheism, and we are not fanatical. We eat a lot, but we're not fanatical. <laughs> the, the language is Hebrew and Aramaic. Can see that they're sure Hebrew, especially yourself. Where is the true root of those languages? Is it Sanskrit or Sanskrit from Middle Persia? Generally, San, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic, by the way, are a different language family. There have been some scholarly attempts to show that all languages are historically related, and ultimately, there's only one language family, but they haven't made so much progress there. So, the current wisdom among historical linguists is that there are different language families. So the answer, oh, okay. okay. I'll drink to this. <laughs> oh, I saw this funny t-shirt. I don't know if I can mention it. Said, it said, save water, drink beer. <laughs> now there's a true blue Aussie. <laughs> yes. I just wondered if you could explain about the metaphysics of quality through as an example was democracy. Yes. What, how would you go about then going from the metaphysic of equality into trying to prove the, the source of equality being from a godhead or 
That's a very good question. That really is. That's a very good question. That's really the key question. Whew, that may have to be another lecture, you, or you have to put more coins in the meter. <laughs> but the, but that, that yeah that but that really is that really is the best question. I mean I mean that's because I kind of stopped there. Think about that one. I mean, there are many things we could say, but uh, maybe we'll save that for another lecture. But that is a very good point. Maybe the next class I give, we'll talk about that. Yes, anything else? So, uh, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.